So there, CNN, of course, is broadcasting it live. goes all over the world. And the president says, Citizens of America, people of the world, God has just spoken to me. You can picture the White House aides going berserk. Oh, it's come to this. He's gone over the edge. But he turns to the camera and he says, I have come to realize that there is only one kingdom and it's the kingdom of God. And we must live our lives in light of his eternal kingdom. What a shock that would be to the nation. What an impact that would make on people. Daniel chapter 4 effectively is Nebuchadnezzar's state of the union message to the Babylonian kingdom and to all of the peoples in the known world at that time. It's a public decree that he makes. You should know that Daniel chapter 4 is really the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. It's the culmination of his spiritual journey. It's the peak of his walk and his relationship that he has with God. He has waned in and out of respecting God till finally in this chapter he comes to be totally, I believe, changed by an experience that he has mentioned in this chapter. You remember that already God has spoken to this guy. He's gotten through to him. There's already been one dream. There has already been a miraculous deliverance of Daniel's three friends from the fiery furnace. And each time that God encounters Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's duly impressed. Each time a miraculous thing happens, like a dream or the deliverance of the three friends, he bows to the earth and he issues a universal decree that everybody should serve or at least pay some kind of obeisance to the God of heaven, the God of Daniel, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But though he was impressed, he really never changed. It really never affected his behavior in the long run. It really wasn't a legitimate conversion. He was moved emotionally. And a person can be moved emotionally. They can be impressed by God, yet not changed. There are people who come to church each week and many times they're stirred and moved emotionally, but that doesn't mean that they're changed. It just means that it was an awesome thing. They were moved. They maybe had a goose bump or two and then they went on. We used to call them Alka-Seltzer Christians. They make a lot of fizz at first, but they fizz out eventually. Nothing that really stuck. Nothing that really took. Yet they think, hey, I come to church every week. That really moved me. That was pretty awesome. But there has to be a change. As the old saying goes, you can put a pig in a parlor, but that won't change the pig. Though it will certainly change the parlor. Nebuchadnezzar is impressed by what he sees with Daniel and being impressed by being in the presence of God, but never really changed until, I believe, chapter 4. It's an unprecedented, remarkable chapter. And because it is so remarkable, we're not going to take it all in one setting. We're going to divide it up and take the second half of Daniel chapter 4 next week and the first half this week. The first 18 verses we want to draw our attention to because there's some pretty powerful lessons. We're going to see how God changes people, even ungodly kings. We're going to see God's role and relationship to human government. And we're going to investigate, looking at Daniel, what is our role and responsibility to the governments of our society. So we want to look at it this way. We want to see it as a remarkable story, under remarkable circumstances, ending with a remarkable statement 
in verse 17 before Daniel interprets the dream. Let's look at this story. In verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house, flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts of my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Sounds very familiar so far, doesn't it? A little deja vu action. This has happened many years before when he was a young king. Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers came in and I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. But at last Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. In him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told the dream before him, saying, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you, And no secret troubles you. Explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. These were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth. Its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens. It could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant. And in it was the food, or was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze. In the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast, and let seven times pass over him. This decision is by the decree of the watchers, and the sentence by the word of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sets it or sets over it the lowest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen, but you, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation. Since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the Spirit of the Holy God is in you. Now we're going to look next week at the interpretation of the dream, but for our purposes this morning... The first thing I'd like to notice is that this is a remarkable story. First of all, it begins with the name Nebuchadnezzar. He wrote it. This is the only chapter in the Bible written by a Gentile king. There are other chapters written by Gentiles. Luke was a doctor. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts. But this is the personal testimony of a changed pagan monarch And he writes, really, this entire chapter, writing his dream and the experience that happened after the dream and what the whole experience lent itself to and how it really changed his life. 
Chapter 4 is so dramatic a shift from Nebuchadnezzar's regular style of being this monarch who gave decrees to kill people, a real rough kind of a guy, to a psalm of worship and praise and a softness before God that some scholars have thought he couldn't have written this. It's just too godly. It's just too good. Daniel must have written this and doctored it up a little bit to make Nebuchadnezzar look really good, as sometimes biographers are paid to do. But what these men and women fail to take into account when they make such a statement is they fail to take into account that God can change anybody. And when He grabs a hold of a life, He can so transform the life that it is remarkably different. God can do that. God can even change a pagan political monarch. Chapter 4 is his testimony. There was an aged Indian chief that was led to Christ by a missionary. He was asked to give an account of what happened to him. Knowing that visual aids are often better than words, he took a pile of leaves, placed a worm in it, lit the leaves on fire, and as the fire was about to consume all the leaves, including the worm, he picked snatched the worm out of the fire and placed it gently in his hand and said, Me, the worm. That's what happened to me. Me, the worm. God snatched me out of the fire. Here's Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. A prideful monarch. God snatched him out of the fire. Humbled him. And so he wrote this personal testimony. By the way, a personal testimony is meant and intended to do exactly that. To show people that God can change them. That God has the power, no matter what area of life they're in, no matter who they are, God has the ability, the power, to change that life dramatically. I remember when I went to my high school reunion several years ago, I walked up to a guy named John Booth. He had a smile on his face. That's what I was drawn to him for, because I remember in high school, this guy never smiled. I thought he never knew how. He was this rough football player who was very antagonistic. And I thought if there's one person that never would come to the Lord, it's John Booth. He walked up to me, gave me a hug. He had found out I was a Christian. He said, man, I've been born again too. I thought, you? Of course, I remember telling some of my classmates when they said, well, Heitzig, what do you do now? I said, I'm a pastor. I remember they dropped their jaws. What? A what? This is a joke again, right? No, I'm really a pastor of a church. No, not you. You're not the religious sort. That's exactly right. I didn't say I was religious. I'm born again now. And and it just floored them. But people don't take in consideration what God can do when He grabs a hold of the life of an individual. There may be some people that in your mind you think, oh, they're beyond reach. They're beyond hope. I bet some of you were thought to be beyond reach. And look at you. You're here with a Bible in your hands, singing songs unto the Lord. You might have some people that you think are beyond reach. God hasn't given up on them. There's still hope. In fact, some of the people that are the most antagonistic often become the strongest Christians when God gets a hold of them. Nebuchadnezzar was a case in point. Hebrews chapter 7 reminds us, He is able to save to the uttermost... Those who come to God through Him. He's able to save them to the uttermost, or as Spurgeon used to rephrase that, to the guttermost. He can pick anybody up from any station in life, grab them, 
change them, make them different. By the way, that's the surefire way of telling if a person really has encountered God. Are they different? Have they changed? If they haven't changed, there's a good chance nothing really has happened. Oh, they got mildly religious. But when a person encounters the living God, they don't stay the same. Ask Isaiah. When he encountered God, he didn't say, Hey, good to see you, God. Have a nice day. He fell to his knees and he said, Woe is me. I am undone. Peter, when he realized Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, he said, Depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. There was a change that happened in his life. It's been said often before that if your religion hasn't changed you, it's time to change your religion. Nebuchadnezzar came in contact with God. God changed him, and he writes here a beautiful testimony, the only chapter in the Bible written by a Gentile king. So it's a remarkable story for that reason. It's also a remarkable story because of the experiences that happened to him. We'll read in detail exactly what happened to him next week. But a form of insanity comes upon Nebuchadnezzar. It's something that has been documented in the annals of Babylon. It's been recognized today as lycanthropy. It's where a person believes he's an animal. He acts like an animal for a period of time. And God reduced this man to a humble position to get a hold of him so that he could write this testimony. Now, I'd like you to look at verse 3 as we consider how remarkable this story is because we see the psalm of praise that Nebuchadnezzar writes. It's the only psalm of praise written by a Gentile king. How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. Let's sneak ahead and look at verse 34. And at the end of time, that is the end of this insanity that we'll read about next week, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to the will or to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now that sounds like a psalm of David, not a psalm of Nebuchadnezzar, right? It's filled with praise. It's theologically accurate. He has come to realize who God is and in humility he speaks in a psalm of worship about God. He says, God has done great things. There are signs and wonders that have been performed. I've seen them. Thinking back to the dream he had in chapter 2. The deliverance of those three Hebrews in chapter 3. Again, the dream that Daniel interprets for him in chapter 4. And this temporary form of insanity that came upon him until he realized, through the signs and the wonders, that God is who he said he was. Notice in the psalm that Nebuchadnezzar speaks about God's kingdom. And this is really where we want to start to focus this morning. Nebuchadnezzar realizes that in contrast to his own personal temporary kingdom, God has a kingdom that is eternal. Now, he should have recognized this already. He already had a dream back in chapter 2. Remember the dream? It was a huge statue. He, Nebuchadnezzar, was the head of gold. After his kingdom would be the chest and arms of silver. This is what he saw speaking of an inferior kingdom, and so on and so forth. Until, at last, a stone came out of heaven, crushed the statue, it became a mountain that filled the whole earth, 
And Daniel interpreted that to mean God will set up an eternal kingdom without end. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't learn his lesson. Nebuchadnezzar in the next chapter built a huge gold image and demanded everybody bow down and worship that image. In defiance to the dream, he was saying, no, my kingdom will last eternally. I'm not going to give in. And now in chapter 4 comes another dream, and God shows him that his kingdom, the kingdom of God, is an eternal kingdom. And I believe, as I've said, that in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is different. He is changed. His focus is not so much on his Babylonian kingdom as it is upon God's eternal kingdom. A few years back, I met an elderly Japanese gentleman named Kohama, yet he always says, call me Mike. It's a lot easier to say than my full name. He was serving in the army for the Japanese in World War II. He was a kamikaze pilot. The war ended two weeks before his mission. He was unable to fly that fatal mission to his death. He wanted to defend the Japanese kingdom, see the kingdom established all over the world. That was his high hopes. The war ended. In the meantime, he had hardened his heart against Jesus Christ. His mother was a Christian, had been praying for him. Two weeks before his mission, the war ended. He went on a search, and several months later, he gave his heart to Jesus Christ. We ordained him as a pastor of Calvary Chapel in Tokyo. And his whole focus ever since that day has been on God's eternal kingdom, not the American kingdom, the Japanese kingdom, but upon God's reign upon the earth. And he's given his life to that. He was changed. He was touched, as Nebuchadnezzar was in this section. Now, in verse 4 begins the dream. And it's not only a remarkable story, but there are remarkable circumstances of this story. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house, flourishing in my palace. It's an important word, flourishing. Literally, it means to be green. It's a word that is used of foliage, of green trees that grow green leaves and they prosper. He says, I was like a huge tree prospering in my palace, flourishing. And then he has a dream that troubles him. It shakes him to his core. And you can see why. Because it's the dream of a huge tree growing up like him. And then it gets chopped down. And I think he had a sneaking suspicion what it was all about. And he calls in the astrologers, the magicians, to interpret it. But they couldn't do it. It's an unusual circumstance because here you have a pagan king and God is continually trying to get through to his heart and he does it by dreams. Now I've never had what I would consider a dream from the Lord. I don't know, I might have, but not that I know of. I've had lots of dreams. I've had the results of late night tacos and uh, pepperoni pizza dreams, but not that I know of I ever had a biblical or a revelation from God. Though I believe in them, I know a woman who is converted She had hardened her heart to the gospel. She wouldn't listen to anyone or anything, and yet she had a dream. Jesus stood in front of her, spoke to her. She got out of bed, got on her knees, and gave her heart to Christ. So I believe God can speak to people through dreams. It doesn't mean you're more spiritual than anyone else. It might mean you're less spiritual than anyone else. Pharaoh got dreams. Nebuchadnezzar got dreams. It could be that you're so hard you won't listen to anything else. God has to speak through a dream. It doesn't necessarily mean you're more spiritual. In verse 7, Nebuchadnezzar does the protocol thing. He calls in all the magicians, all the astrologers. This is the pagan god squad. 
These are the Edgar Casey's, the Gene Dixon's, the 1-900 psychic hotline phone numbers. And they don't work. You can picture all these jokers in there. Let me have your palm, O king. I'll read it for you. Say, um. But they are unable to pull it off. And it's all a setup, isn't it? So that Daniel can come in and grandstand the whole thing. Daniel comes in. Nebuchadnezzar says, I know that you're different. The Spirit of God lives within you. And it's all a setup to show that God is able to do what no man can do under the anointing of the Spirit of God. In verse 8, listen to the description of this king to Daniel. At last Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. And him is the Spirit of the Holy God. I told the dream before him, saying, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the Spirit of the Holy God is in you and no secret troubles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen in its interpretation. Question. Why was it that Daniel didn't come in until the end? A couple of reasons. It could be that he was busy. He was the prime minister next to this man, Nebuchadnezzar. So he was busy and he was doing other things. And finally he came in when time permitted, perhaps getting back from a journey. Or could it be that Nebuchadnezzar didn't want Daniel at first? You know, no news is good news. He remember what happened last time when Daniel came in. It wasn't a pretty picture, the interpretation. Hey, let's just keep Daniel out of the picture. It's bad karma to have him in the room. Let me bring all my other guys in, see if they can pull it off. Well, they couldn't do it. And the description of Daniel by Nebuchadnezzar is revealing. It shows me something. It shows me that unbelievers pick up on the character traits of believers. They're watching you. Non-Christians are looking at your lives. They notice how you react, what you do. Daniel, I notice that the Spirit of God lives within you. Nothing shakes you up. That's what the word trouble means, that nothing makes you panic. Your eye is on God. You're fixed. You're confident. It's interesting. I can't go anywhere in this city without being recognized. If I go to the mall, if I go to a restaurant, and my mother-in-law, who's not a believer, was visiting us one time, and she was going to different places with us, and they'd say, Hey, Skip, how are you doing? Hey, Lenya, Skip. And she turned to me and she said, You couldn't get away with anything in this town if you wanted to. She said, I wouldn't like that. I said, I love it. That's accountability. You can't get away with anything. That's good. You also are in a fishbowl. It might not be as expansive, but people know who you are. You have people who work with you, who watch you, who listen to what you say, who watch how you act. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. What message is getting through to them? Would they say, like Nebuchadnezzar said of Daniel, there's something different about you. The Spirit of God lives within you. Nothing really shakes you up. You've got a confident trust and footing in the Lord your God. That's what he noticed. In verse 13, the revelation of the dream is told by Nebuchadnezzar. I saw in the visions of my head, while on my bed, that there was a watcher. That's a Babylonian way to say an angel. A watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven. Verse 17, the decision is by the decree of the watchers. These are angels. And if you have read the Bible through, you know that angels administer God's justice. 
Here they're called watchers. They're innumerable. They're all over the place. If you're a believer, the Bible says that angels watch over you. They are sent to minister to those of you who are heirs of salvation. But the fact that they are called watchers, that they're looking at what you're doing, that's a bit scary perhaps. It's been said that secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. Nobody saw that. Oh, they sure did. A whole arena full saw that. Now, again, I can't say that I've ever seen an angel. I've married an angel. But in the true biblical, extraterrestrial sense of an angelic being from heaven, I can't say I've ever seen one. Now, maybe I have. The Bible says I may have done it unawares. Hebrews chapter 13. But consciously, I don't know. Though I have experienced their work and their effect, I am conscious of their activity. I'm sure if it were possible, I would have given many of them ulcers by now. Oh no, he's on a snowboard today. Tomorrow he's going to be on that motorcycle. Next month he's traveling with Franklin Graham all over the earth to these dangerous places. Let's double up the team of angels that's going to watch after this guy. I'm conscious of their activity. Now look at verse 17. By the way, before we get to that, notice there's a change of pronoun in this dream. It gives it away. The angels talk about the tree, but the personal pronoun shifts from it to him. Since when is a tree a him? But that's what we read about in verse 15. It says, Let it be wet with the dew of heaven. Let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast until seven times pass over him. And again, I think that Nebuchadnezzar knew in his heart, this has got to be me. I was the one flourishing like the green tree. Next week we'll get to that interpretation, but I want to draw your attention to verse 17. We've seen this is a remarkable story. It has remarkable circumstances. Verse 17 is a remarkable statement that is a bit controversial. It may be a tough pill for some of you to swallow, but it is Scripture nonetheless. And this is the intention that the dream was meant to convey. This decision, verse 17, is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sets over it the basest of men. That's a remarkable statement. It tells us, first of all, God rules in human affairs. He's the boss. Another way of saying God is sovereign. The sovereignty of God, folks, is the overarching principle of all of the Scripture. God is sovereign. What that basically means is that He is subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent, and does whatever He wants to. As He wrote... In Isaiah chapter 46, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Look again at verse 35 of chapter 4. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? God is sovereign. God has not lost control. 
The earth hasn't gotten so bad that God's up there pulling out His celestial hair, going, I can't take it anymore. It's out of control. God is sovereign. That doesn't mean that God's responsible for sin. It means that God has a will and He permits men also in the realm of His sovereignty to exercise their free will. So in some cases, there is the direct will of God where He causes certain things to happen. There's other times where He permits certain things to happen, always working out His sovereign will. A.W. Tozer, I think, illustrates how this works best. He said, An ocean liner leaves New York bound for Liverpool. Its destination has been determined by proper authorities. Nothing can change that. This is a faint picture of sovereignty. On board the ocean liner are several scores of passengers. They're not in chains. Neither are their activities determined by decree. They are completely free to move about as they will. They eat, they sleep, they play, they lounge about on the deck. They read, they talk all together as they please. But all the while, the great ocean liner is carrying them steadily onward toward a predetermined port. And so the liner of God's sovereignty is steadily moving through history. It moves unhindered toward God's ultimate fulfillment, though we have the exercise of freedom of choice in that arena. Now look at the end of verse 17. It gets more specific, and this is where the problem that we have with it would come in. The Most High rules in the kingdom of man, gives it to whomever he will, and sets over it the lowest of men. Specifically, God rules in political affairs. God appoints human leaders in nations of the world and oftentimes picks the worst of the rulers. So if you've run for office and you're all disappointed that you didn't win, in one sense you might want to rejoice because God often sets the worst, not the best, over it. Sets over it the lowest of men, the basest of men. Nebuchadnezzar was one such man. Now this brings up the whole issue is what is our responsibility in lieu of the fact that God is so sovereign and God involves himself in the political arena of the world? What is the Christian's responsibility to government? So I'd like you, having this as a background, to now turn to Romans chapter 13, where it's amplified. Romans chapter 13. As we said, one aspect of God's sovereignty, God's rule, is that he appoints human leaders over men. It doesn't mean he approves what they do or their personal character. In fact, the opposite is the case many times. He disapproves of it. But he reserves the right to control the leadership of the governments of this world. Verse 1 of chapter 13 of Romans, Let every soul, and since you have one, it refers to you as well, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves, for rulers are not a terror to good works but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. 
For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Have you ever thought of the IRS as ministers of God? That's a hard one to swallow. They continually attend to these things, it says, and we know that's a fact. Render, therefore, to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. To sum that statement up, Christians are to be model citizens. Model citizens. Knowing that we have another kingdom, we are faithfully preaching the gospel to everyone that we can in whatever kingdom of the earth we find ourselves in, but we do it within the framework of civil government. Why? Because civil authorities exist by the appointment of God. Therefore, we are to be subject to governing authorities. Listen to Psalm 62. God has spoken once. Yes, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Even Jesus recognized this. He stood before a godless governor named Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate said, Don't you know that I have authority over you? Jesus said, You couldn't have any authority unless it were given to you by God. I recognize, Pilate, that God has given you this authority, though you are a wicked ruler. It's given to you by God. Notice in Romans 13, and you'll find it in many passages in the Bible, no distinction is made between good governments or bad. Though there are good governors, there are good presidents, there are bad presidents, there are good kings, there are bad kings, good laws, bad laws, no distinction is made. In fact, Paul was writing to the Romans who were under one of the worst forms of government where the Caesars and all of the Roman cohorts oppressed them and persecuted them. Caesar Nero was the one who had him put to death, and yet he says, let every soul be subject to governing authorities because God put them in power. You say, no, wait a minute. What about cruel governments? Really, really wicked governments. Of course, here is one of them that Paul writes to the Romans about, the Roman government. Let's take another example. David and Saul. Saul was a wicked king, but he was the king nonetheless. And when the king came against David to kill him, and David had a chance to kill him, David said this, Let the Lord judge between you and me. Let the Lord avenge me on you. My hand shall not be against you, for I will not touch the Lord's anointed. Let's take another example. Peter wrote to the persecuted church, the early church, of the first century, who were being put to death by cruel governments. And Peter said, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. In other words, how you behave to your civil authorities demonstrates your faith to that society. There's another example. Paul writes to Timothy. He said, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in godliness and honesty. Here's the point. The first way that you affect your government before you get on the phone or write the letters is to pray for them. 
doesn't mean you don't make the phone call or you don't write the letters, but do you pray for them first? Do you pray about that issue first? That's the first way to affect your society. Another example is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes on the scene. The world that he's involved in is, again, the Roman world. The Caesars have allowed for slaves to be warp and woof of the Roman Empire. It's unjust. It's wicked. The innocents are being killed. But Jesus has a priority. His message is repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he stood before Pilate who said, don't you know that I have the authority? How come you're not saying anything? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my subjects would rise up and fight. But my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus was making a contrast between him and all the other Jewish prisoners who were often bucking the system, refusing to pay taxes, becoming sworn assassins like the Jewish zealots. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, I'd rise up and fight. You say, but Skip, what about very, very wicked rulers and some of the most wicked governments of the world? I think the Bible makes it clear that even wicked rulers can be put in office by the permissive will of God, and God permits that as a part of his plan to punish a wicked nation and to let that wicked nation go on its course toward destruction. That's right. And when the church is in the midst of that wicked government to allow the church to grow. You say, the church to grow? No, no, the church can't grow unless the government's perfect. Case in point, China. The first 100 years of missions from the West to China yielded 800,000 converts. That's pretty substantial. 800,000 people came to Christ in 100 years of Western missions in China. But then during the 40s, the revolution came. Communism took over. The church was forced underground. They had not what we have today. Most of them didn't even have Bibles. They didn't have air-conditioned buildings. They didn't have Christian radio stations and television. And we in the West thought, oh, this poor church in China, they're just going to die. They're going to just wane. There'll be no more of them. When the doors opened up again, we went to check on them and found that five to, in some estimates, ten million people had come to Christ. An incredible revival during the persecution. During the persecution. Now, I want to balance that out very quickly by saying our form of government is different. It's not autocratic. It's democratic. And you are allowed to be involved. You are allowed to have input. You're allowed to vote. You're allowed to make phone calls, to write letters, to elect governing officials, and well, you should to do good as much as possible unto all men. Daniel was a government official. Joseph was involved in politics. But the balance is this. You don't need a perfect biblical government for your primary task to be effective. That's the spreading of the gospel. Even the worst governments can sometimes have the greatest revival. And I want to end really with this question. In lieu of all that, is there ever a time when I am called to not submit to the government? Yes. Whenever that government gives you a decree that goes against what God has decreed, you're called to disobey it. Pharaoh gave a legal decree that every baby who is a male Hebrew baby be killed. 
There was a couple midwives who said, I refuse to do that. Thou shalt not kill. God doesn't want me to kill. I'm not going to do it. And he disobeyed the government. Daniel disobeyed chapter 1. He said, I'm not going to eat unkosher food. It's against the law of my God. I'm going to eat this kind of food. Daniel chapter 3. A decree to worship an image. The three Hebrew children said, that's against the law of my God. I can't worship a false image, a false God. I won't do it. Disobeyed. Chapter 6. A legal decree was given that no prayer should be offered to any God except the gods of Babylon. Daniel said, tough toast. Paraphrased. He opened up his window three times a day. He bowed and worshiped God toward Jerusalem. He disobeyed the government. But whenever you do, make sure it is because the government has given a decree flatly against the command of God, and then be willing to suffer the consequences. Daniel had a lion's den waiting for him. The Hebrew children had a fiery furnace waiting for them. They were delivered, but not everyone is. Then in Acts chapter 4, there was a law passed in Jerusalem that said, you can't preach Jesus in Jerusalem. No evangelism. Peter and John are brought before the Jewish elders. We strictly warn you that you'll never preach or teach in the name of Jesus. You know how they responded? They said, you figure it out on your own. You decide if it's right for us to listen to you or God. We cannot help but speak the things that we have seen and heard. They went out again and started doing it, preaching the gospel. They got arrested again. They said, we warned you. The apostles said, we must obey God rather than men. So summing it up, our responsibility to government is this. You must respect it, you must submit to it, you must support it with taxes, you must pray for it, and occasionally you must disobey it. Nebuchadnezzar had it right. There's only one eternal kingdom. My eye isn't on Babylon, it's on God's kingdom now. You know, when Winston Churchill died, before he died, he was on his deathbed. He was thinking about the current situation politically, socially in the world. A world that he had fought to free to bring up to a higher standard. His last words, it is said, as he thought about the conditions of his world, he said, there's no hope. There's no hope. He breathed his last, and with that he died. There's no hope. You could put that over a lot of situations today, couldn't you? Rwanda, Bosnia, Mogadishu, Sudan inner cities of America, the AIDS epidemic, you think, gosh, there's no hope. Is there hope? Is there ever going to be a utopia? Not as long as the conditions of men's hearts remain the same. Nations change when people change. That's why the gospel is preeminent in the change of any nation. The balance, be involved, But don't think that any political format is going to bring in righteousness. It's the gospel that must be preached. And if you're a housewife, if you're a governor, a president, a king, it doesn't matter. As Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Governments rise, and even the most powerful government falls. And one day, in eternity, even our government will just be a wisp of a memory in time. Let's get involved in our society, but principally spreading the kingdom of God. Now consider one question as we close the service today. Are you under the governing authority of God's kingdom? 
Are you like Nebuchadnezzar who at first was impressed by God, but not changed? When God changed him, his world was so revolutionized, and he thought of God's eternal kingdom. But you know what? He had to learn the hard way. How about you? Maybe today you'll just say, Hey, Lord, I want you to govern my life. I want the government of my life to rest on your shoulders. Take over. That's the place to begin. Let's pray. Father, we come as your body and we thank you for the opportunity to gather in a free country. Though freedoms are closing in many fronts, they're being destroyed by many political agendas. We thank you still for the freedoms we have and we know that even the cruelest form of government won't hinder the spread of the gospel as we saw in the early church and in China and many other examples. Lord, I pray that you would cause your people to really be involved as salt and light in our society, keeping in mind that our agenda must always be the change of the heart of men, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only kingdom that has any hope. Lord, may we rise up and be the people of God in this society, unashamed and unafraid to stand up for you. And I pray, Father, for those who desperately need that relationship with Jesus Christ this morning, that there would be a submitting and a surrendering to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.